while humility, of course, is essential, while we must eschew self-aggrandizement, we must at the same time understand the strength and capacity that God has given us. Humility does not, for Judaism, mean denying our talents. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 297, The Arrogance of Uziah. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In a famous passage in his autobiography, Benjamin Franklin describes compiling a list of virtues on which he would work. Quote, My list of virtues contained at first but twelve, but a Quaker friend, having kindly informed me that I was generally thought proud, that my pride showed itself frequently in conversation, that I was not content with being in the right when discussing any point, but was overbearing and rather insolent, of which he convinced me by mentioning several instances. I determined, endeavoring to cure myself, if I could, of this vice or folly among the rest, and I added humility to my list, giving an extensive meaning to the word. I cannot boast of much success in acquiring the reality of this virtue, but I had a good deal with regard to the appearance of it. And then Franklin adds a bit later in the passage. In reality, there is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive and will every now and then peep out and show itself. You will see it perhaps often in this history. For even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. End quote. Arrogance or unjustified pride is a tremendous temptation one which, as Franklin notes, is difficult to overcome. And it was just such a form of pride that figured in the downfall of an enormously successful king, teaching us thereby an important lesson about humility and the nature of leadership. When we last left off, the Davidic dynasty had been saved by the high priest Yehoiada and his heroic wife Yehosheba, who hid the young Yoash in the temple until the wicked queen Atalia could be overthrown. Yoash rules wisely so long as he has the high priest to guide him. But... The king, after the high priest's death, goes terribly astray. He incites a mob against the new high priest, who is murdered. The king, in the end, becomes subject to Chazael, king of Aram, and is ultimately killed by his own courtiers. Yoash is succeeded by his son, Amatia, who follows a similar moral arc. He begins by ruling righteously and wisely, but then embraces the idolatry of the Edomites and goes to war with northern Israel. In this engagement, the northern kingdom of Israel defeats Judah and wreaks havoc on Jerusalem. Amatia is followed by Uziah, who also begins his reign devoted to God and succeeds in reestablishing Jerusalem's security and defeating its enemies. Chapter 26, verse 9. Moreover, Uziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the turning of the wall and fortified them. Also, he built towers in the desert and dug many wells, for he had much cattle, both in the low country and in the plains workers of the land also, and vine dressers in the mountain and the Carmel, for he loved working the land. Moreover, Uziah had a host of fighting men that went out to war by bands, according to the number of their accounts by the hand of Yeel the scribe, and Maseyahu the captain under the hand of Hananiah, one of the king's officers. The whole number of the chief of the fathers and of the mighty men of valor were 2,600, and under their hand was an army 300,000 and 7,500 that made war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uziah prepared for them throughout all the host shields and spears and helmets and armor and bows and slings to cast stones. And he made in Jerusalem devices invented by cunning men to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks to shoot arrows and great stones 
and his name spread far abroad, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. Thus, Uziah is an incredible success. With strength, however, Uziah develops a flaw, but it is not idolatry, it is arrogance. The king's success leads him to celebrate how spiritually special he believes himself to be. Rabbi Alex Israel notes how this would have come about. Quote, If we place Uziah's formidable accomplishments in context, we may understand the roots of his hubris. The period prior to Uziah saw the kingdom in a dreadful slump. The preceding kings, Yoash and Amatziah, both suffered disastrous war campaigns. Yoash faced a devastating Aramean threat to Yerushalayim, surviving only by paying his entire treasury to Chazael. The kingdom was left impoverished and weak. His son Amatziah instigated a disastrous war against Israel and was defeated and captured in battle, with Yerushalayim overrun by Israel and the treasury emptied yet again. Indeed, both of his forebears, Yoash and Amatia, were assassinated by the courtiers, and so the kingdom which Uziah inherited as he ascended the throne was a humiliated and destitute country. But Uziah spearheaded a spectacular turnaround, both domestically and internationally. Uziah, who was loyal to God, had every reason to believe that his religious dedication was the key to his success, end quote. It is with this in mind that we can understand what next occurs. The king, overcome with himself, decides to perform the incense offering in the temple, something which is restricted to priests alone. The king is then struck with tzarat, which is often translated as leprosy, but which we have argued in our study of Leviticus should be left untranslated, with the understanding that it is an unidentified ailment, either physical or supernatural. Uziah, as punishment for arrogance, becomes a mitzorah, one struck with tzarat. Verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God, and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. And Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord that were valiant men. And they withstood Uziah the king, and said unto him, It appertaineth not unto thee, Uziah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests the sons of Aaron that are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed. Neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. Then Uziah was wroth and had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and while he was wroth with the priests, the tzarat rose up in his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the high priest, and all the priests looked upon him, and behold, he was a mitzorah in his forehead, and they thrust him out from thence. He himself hastened to go out because the Lord had smitten him. And Uziah the king was a mitzorah unto the day of his death, and dwelt in a separate house, being a mitzorah for he was cut off from the house of the Lord, and Yotam his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. As we saw in Leviticus, one who is afflicted with tzarat must remove himself from the city, and can only purify himself and rejoin society when he begins to be healed. Uziah never experienced this healing, and thus, at the moment of his great triumph, he had to fade into obscurity, not even joining his ancestors in death. Thus, verse 22. Now the rest of the acts of Uziah, first and last, did Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amot, write, So Uziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the burial which belonged to the kings. For they said, He is a leper, and Yotam his son reigned in his stead. Uziah, then, was never purified of Tzarat. But in this context, restudying the purification process of one who does become healed from Tzarat is quite interesting. As we saw in Leviticus, the purification was performed through the sprinkling of purifying blood utilizing two botanical ingredients, a small slender reed of hyssop and wood from a great cedar tree. The two together are utilized to sprinkle the blood of purification. These two botanical species, the Jewish sages comment, respectively represent humility, that's the hyssop, and pride, 
That's the cedar tree. And my father once commented to me that the symbolism of the two being taken together, not only the hyssop, but also the cedar, is that while humility, of course, is essential, while we must eschew self-aggrandizement, we must at the same time understand the strength and capacity that God has given us. Humility does not, for Judaism, mean denying our talents. There is a striking passage in the Talmud commenting on a statement in the Mishnah that Mishamet Rebbe Batla Anivut, when Rabbi Judah the Prince died, humility ceased. In other words, that now there are no longer any truly humble people. Commenting on this statement, that humility died with Rabbi Judah the Prince. A Talmudic sage, Rabbi Joseph, adds the following Do not say that only the earlier generations had humble people. Deika Ana, there's me, meaning I'm humble. This Talmudic text, as amusing as it may seem at first glance, is actually making a serious point, which is that humility does not preclude one's being aware of his or her own gifts, talents, and virtues. In our discussion of biblical leadership, and especially in our analysis of David, we have emphasized how biblical leadership involves a dialectic. Leaders must see themselves simultaneously as directors of history, but also as objects in a divinely directed drama overseen by a God whose purposes they cannot fully understand. In the history of the West, there are, I think, few examples of leaders that truly join greatness and humility, but they do exist. Abraham Lincoln, during the Civil War, was constantly enormously active, impactful. And yet, as the war went on, he developed a reverence for the hand of God and understood that he was part of a providential plan overseen by an omniscient almighty. We have previously cited the historian David Bob, who, describing Lincoln during the war, cites a letter that the president wrote to Eliza Gurney and reflects as follows, quote, Humility for Lincoln was tied directly to man's relationship to the Almighty. In Lincoln's humility, perhaps more powerfully than that of any other figure, we see the spiritual dimension of this great virtue. As he described himself in the Gurney letter, Lincoln was a humble instrument in the hands of our Heavenly Father. End quote. Bob then goes on to reflect how it is in the biblically inspired complexity of Lincoln that we truly see an understanding of how humility can be joined with action. Bob adds, quote, Lincoln's mature political thought was carefully honed and had a theological richness unrivaled in American history. Abraham Lincoln demonstrated that humility gives us eyes to see that we are not God. God may seem distant, perhaps even ultimately unknowable, but even if God is ineffable, he is not unjust. And even if he is omnipotent, he is not irresponsible. Lincoln knew that he was not a purely passive instrument. God's power never divests us of responsibility. Humility is not inaction combined with hope that things will work out. However much Abraham Lincoln spoke of himself as a humble instrument in the hands of God, he never lapsed into inactivity. End quote. This, then, is what leaders are called to embody, the joining of cedar and hyssop. To allow arrogance is a great failing. But on the other hand, for a king to be inactive is not true humility. It is an abandonment of one's responsibility as a leader. One is obligated to recognize one's talents and to devote them toward a greater good according to the duties set down by God, while never allowing success to inspire arrogance. It is this balance, embodied by cedar and hyssop, that some of the greatest of biblically inspired leaders understood. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.